Hello, investigators and inspectors, persisters and obsessors. Welcome to this week's episode of Right Minded. I'm Brooke Warner here with my bookish co-agent, Grant Faulkner. And we're back on another subgenre of a subgenre of a memoir, Grant. <laughs> <laughs> kind of similar to what we recently did with Peggy Orenstein, where we delved into the self-help memoir, because this week we're talking about the investigative memoir. And while it's not always the case that investigative memoirs are family memoirs, I do think the best ones are because in order for it to be classified as a memoir, you're a character, you're at the center of it, obviously. And so to me, the ones of these, you know, that have the most intrigue are those where a family member is the one who's digging into the past to uncover truths and make sense of family history or lore or myth, or maybe even to uncover a crime. And that's what we're talking about today with Gretchen Charrington. Um, She decided to tackle this massive family history to see if she could find the truth of what happened way back in the 1920s. So it's really going to be a fun topic. What an endeavor and, and such an interesting subgenre of memoir to me. And I, I do want to remind listeners that we, we saw some, something very similar recently in fiction with, a, with our recent guest, Cheryl A. Head. And, she, and Cheryl wrote a novel that centered her grandfather's murder by uh, Alabama police. So, so a lot of fiction stems from these family stories as well, since they get passed down by generations. And there are many holes in the story usually. So, so of course, it's probably very individual when it comes to, to what makes an author decide to write these stories as fiction versus memoir. But I'm, but I'm really interested to hear more about Gretchen's story, Brooke, since I know you're, you know, you worked with her um, because she's a, she writes press author. Yeah, exactly. And um, so I do, I know the book well, it's called The Butcher, The Embezzler and The Fall Guy. And in the story, Gretchen's grandfather, A.L. Eberhardt, is the fall guy. The butcher is George Hormel, who founded Hormel Meat Company uh, that everybody knows in the 1900s. I buy all my black label bacon from Hormel, by the way. Uh, and the embezzler is the employee who embezzled $1.2 million, which in today's money is more like $15 million or maybe even more. So the fact that he got away with that for as long as he did is nothing short of astounding. And so Gretchen's desire to find out what happened here is something of family lore because her father was the poet laureate Richard Eberhardt and he uh, was the subject of her first memoir, which is called Poetic License. Uh, and the family always said they would have been grossly wealthy if uh, if their grandfather, you know, if, if Gretchen's grandfather hadn't been the fall guy in the scandal because mm. he would have had, you know, he would have been at, in the ground level at Hormel. And so uh, after the embezzlement scandal, Ale Eberhardt got fired, kind of caught in the crosshairs, as it were. Uh, so Gretchen grew up kind of with that family lore, but as she got older, she couldn't shake the idea that maybe her grandfather knew something, maybe he was involved a little bit more than her family wanted to believe. And so she sets out to discover the truth. And herein lies the investigative part of the memoir, making trips to the Midwest where her father grew up uh, and where her grandfather worked for Hermel. And I just love this kind of history for lots of reasons. I mean, first, the meat industry is grossly fascinating to me. 
Uh, second, these are like really powerful, greedy, privileged men who populate her book uh, in the early 20th century. And I love how she captures this era of industrial growth and wealth and nepotism. And then third is her role in it, you know, all these years later, which is intertwining her personal journey to find out the truth, even though it does cost her something with her family, uh, who frankly would prefer that she not do the digging, uh, who see her grandfather as a victim, you know, who couldn't have possibly known about the crime. But Gretchen, she's not so sure. And so that's what makes it, to my mind, like true crime slash investigation. Yeah, there's no wonder she couldn't shake this story as someone who grew up, I think, especially when you're removed from it, like the generation she is, you know, you can't help but wanting to to figure it all out um, as a writer. And I agree with you, Brooke, about the, the also the grossly fascinating element of the meat industry. It's a very dramatic industry, I think, just to, on its premise. And I, I say that with some firsthand knowledge because my hometown is just 30 miles away from Ottumwa, Iowa, which, which had a lot of meat packing plants back in the day. And it was actually known as little Chicago because of the connections between the money from the meat industry and the mafia in Chicago. So that's the kind of lens I'm bringing to this story. There's just like a <laughs> lot of natural drama in it. And yeah, I've always actually wanted to write about it myself. But Brooke, on the, on the subject of this genre of meat books, I went back and looked in our show notes and it was in uh, Zakaya Dahlia Harris's episode about writing from within your industry that you mentioned you've read a surprising number of meat-centric books. So this one must have been right up your alley. <laughs> it was. Oh my gosh. I mean, plus it's a memoir, so a total dream come true. Yeah. So I think it would be uh, good to talk about what constitutes an investigative memoir. You know, what are the necessary elements for that subgenre? Yeah, I mean, to some degree, all memoirs are investigative. So I do want to say that up front, you're investigating the story of your life, right, even if it doesn't involve the kind of intense research that Gretchen did. But what's different about investigative memoirs is the research. Those could be primary resources, legal documents, they could have witnesses or experts, even if those people come in the form of friends, uh, of family or descendants. And this certainly was the case in Gretchen's memoir in the interview, she's going to talk about, you know, all the people that she talked to people who actually knew the players. And, and that is a profound kind of research because those people are helping you to put together the story. Uh, and where she's writing about uh, Austin, Minnesota is a small town and a lot of people worked for Hermel. And that meant that you know, the parents or the grandparents also work for Hermel. There's a spam mu museum in Austin. Uh, and then the woman who works there is a memorable character, both because she's a holder of knowledge and a person who's not particularly open to Gretchen's digging around. Uh, and so I think, you know, just thinking about that all these years later, what people are protecting or what they want to divulge or not divulge is also interesting. And it's always good to have some foils in these kinds of books, you know, the characters who are invested in protecting the status quo. Yeah, definitely. I, I was actually thinking about a couple other books that fit into this category of investigative memoir. And one is by our mutual friend, Alia Vaz. Uh, her, her book, Home Baked, My Mom, Marijuana, and the Stoning of San Francisco, takes a journalistic approach to the, the 1970s and 80s San Francisco, where she writes about queer history and the murder of George Moscone and Harvey Milk and the Jonestown Massacre and then the AIDS crisis. And it's investigative to the extent that it's 
it's piecing together her mother's story because much of the book is told through her mother's lens, uh, which is something we're seeing more and more of with these kinds of books. And it, it also made me think of Julie Metz's uh, Eva and Eve, which explored her mother's escape from Nazi-occupied Austria as a little girl. And another perhaps more traditional investigative memoir is Carrie Arsenault's book, Milltown, about the rural town of Mexico, Maine, where over a century, the entire community pretty much worked for the paper mill, much like in Austin, Minnesota, including three generations of Carrie's family, and she investigates the price these people paid in the form of the illness, and you know, which are mostly cancers that drive the central question of the book: who and what we sacrifice to survive. So, Brooke, I'm curious: do any others come to mind for you that you want to share? Yeah, I mean, there are so many good nonfiction narratives like these. But when you were talking, Grant, when I was thinking about these, I actually got to thinking about podcasts because I listen to a lot of true crime podcasts. And similarly, you know, it doesn't really matter the medium, right? Because people may decide to tell the story through a book or they might choose to tell their family story or a story they're familiar with uh, through a podcast. And one of the things that's fascinating about podcasts is a lot of times the people are somehow connected to the victim, um, as is the case with a couple of stories that I wanted to share. I loved the podcast Your Own Backyard, which was created and produced by Chris Lambert, a freelance journalist uh, who grew up in San Luis Obispo. And that was why he decided to um, uncover the story of what happened to a, a murder in a, with regard to a murder there. And then The Coldest Case in Laramie was another one hosted by Kim Barker. That was a Times investigative uh, podcast. And she had connections to Laramie. So I thought that was interesting. And then another great podcast that I loved that I listened to last year was called Mother Country Radicals, uh, which is done by Zaid Ayers Dorn, who was the son of Weather Underground leaders Bernadine Dorn and Bill Ayers, uh, about his parents' involvement in the uh, Weather Underground. Also fascinating. Obviously, he's a family member. So you know, in all of these cases, um, they're just shows that unfold a lot like a book and they're series. So they probably have like eight to 10 episodes uh, and they can be very spellbinding, you know, obviously just like books. So if you can figure out how to tell these stories well, and there's a personal connection, then I think all the more compelling uh, and I recently attended a memoir panel at the Woodstock Book Festival, and one of the memoirists on the panel did share that she learned how to write tension by listening to podcasts. So I thought that was an interesting tip. Yeah, definitely. As long as you're listening to the right kind of podcast, I suppose. <laughs> right. I do. I guess I feel like I'm having my muscles flexed for good true crime, given how many of those I consume. Yeah. Well, without further ado, let's get to the heart of this true crime story, though there are no dead bodies in Gretchen's story, but the, but the, but the crime does involve a whole lot of embezzled money, meat, and, and, and a maybe fall guy cast as a victim by generations of Gretchen's family. But, but is he? That's the question. So many good reasons to buy Gretchen's book, and we'll be right back with the interview. But no spoilers after the short break. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. 
Welcome back, everyone. I'm so pleased to have Gretchen Charrington with us today. She's the daughter of Pulitzer Prize winning and U.S. Poet Laureate Richard Eberhardt. She grew up in a home filled with literary icons like Robert Frost, Anne Sexton, and James Dickey in a life that she captured in her award-winning first memoir, Poetic License. For years, Gretchen made her career advising CEOs around how to transform their companies into places where both businesses and people could thrive. Gretchen's work has appeared in the Huffington Post, Lit Hub, Electric Lit, Quartz, and elsewhere. And she was nominated for a 2012 Pushcart Prize. Her latest book is The Butcher, The Embezzler, and The Fall Guy, a historical memoir about many things, which we're going to dive into. And Gretchen, welcome. Thank you so much. Happy to be with you both. I'm thrilled. I love your book, and I'm so proud to welcome you. You're a repeat She Writes Press author. Your first book was a fairly traditional memoir, and the second book just out is something a little different. You describe it as a true crime historical memoir. I think it's also an investigative memoir, which we can talk about a little bit. But the precedent for this kind of memoir, books that delve into family histories, usually written by someone either in the know or from within the family. So I really wanted to ask you about what were some of the unique considerations that came up when writing this kind of memoir that was different from your first memoir? Well, it's a great question. I think I think actually there were a couple of things. One is that it's not just about my family, but it's also about a brand name company that still exists today, a powerful meatpacking company, Hormel Foods. And so that also, I think, put another layer of importance to me in terms of how I told the story, what I said, what I didn't say, et cetera. Um, but certainly as far as the family goes, and sort of digging into my grandfather's past and trying to get to know him as I did, I was concerned somewhat by the usual things of, you know, what would other family members think, but also by the fact that I never knew him. He, he had died long before I was born, as, as well as my grandmother had died long before I was born. And so I had no personal reference to them. It was not like writing about my dad, for instance, or other family members. So I think those two things were the primary considerations I had to kind of figure out how to deal with. Yeah, well, Gretchen, I'm, I'm just guessing that you did a fair amount of research for this, you know, since it is a historical memoir. And there is, a, a, you know, there's a dual issue here, um, though, to grapple with. And on one hand, you know, I'm curious, was there, you know, too much material to wade through to the point of <laughs> overwhelm? And on the other hand, not enough answers to the very specific questions you needed to know the answers to since there were specific family members involved. So I'm just kind of curious how you dealt with those opposing realities of research. Yeah, you nailed that very well, actually. Um, my some of the some of the source materials were in my father's literary archives at Dartmouth. Um, there were four large boxes of my grandfather's papers and personal letters, and so that gave me incredible opportunity to sort of hear his voice and 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 also to understand some of the things that happened to him. But by the same token, there is not much available, um, really more than surface level about George Hormel or the embezzler. And on the other hand, they each wrote autobiographies. So I did have two autobiographies to read through from them. But it, there's there's really not, I mean, there's, there's a bunch of things online about George Hormel, but they all say exactly the same things, you know, the sort of same facts about his life, et cetera. So 
On the one hand, I had a lot of information about my grandfather and a lot of family stories that I had grown up with about him, but not enough where it really mattered in some ways. You know, like, was George Hormel like the way my father thought of him, which was sort of as the bad guy that ruined the family? Or was he more like the way he spoke of himself in his autobiography, which, by the way, was not published at the time. So I assume it was fairly honestly written, although, you know, clearly an autobiography. So there was this juxtaposition of too much in one way and not enough in another way. And I, I think that's where my tendency comes in to try to rely on real people and talking with them and people who either knew my grandparents just barely, or they had parents who knew my grandparents, people who knew George Hormel or family members who knew him, and including one person that I was um, so delighted to meet who actually knew the embezzler, mostly through his parents, but as a little kid knew him as well, or as a teenager really knew him as well. So, you know, where I had to figure out which fact, let's say, to, to rely on in a particular source material if there was question for me, the the sway often for me is from the real live voices who actually know these people. And that's kind of how I would prioritize what I used. It's really interesting to think about that aging population of people who knew. Know, right? Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. So I'd love for you to talk a bit about the inspiration to write this book, because of course, I know, and you just alluded to, you know, there was this sort of, uh, your, your grandfather was the fall guy, right? He got a bad rap. Um, and, and so you grew up with that understanding, or I should say paradigm. At what point did it occur to you that you might write this family history? Um, and, and what were some of the bigger obstacles to actually getting it done? I think I started really thinking I might write something about it when I was in my 40s. And it was at the same time that I was discovering my own truth or establishing my own truth about my father. And um, I, one of those truths to me anyway was that he, I you know, realized and recognized that he was an embellisher of stories. And so you know, as I thought about the stories I heard about my grandfather, it made me think about well, all right, I wonder if he's embellished any of those or how much can I rely on precisely what he said about his, his father. So, you know, the, there there were times when I felt like I could rely on what my father said, particularly if I got it corroborated by other resources or people. But at the same time, I knew there was a fallacy in, in just believing everything he said. In addition, of course, I was working then and proceeded to work for, you know, decades with CEOs and senior executives. And I saw them as very real people. They had their strengths and they had their flaws. And some of them had great vulnerabilities. Some of them had real fears about things. And I, I was in a position with them that, that where I was kind of their confidant for, for a bunch of them anyway. And from that lesson, I also knew that George Hormel probably wasn't quite as bad as my father described him. Um, and maybe my grandfather, also a you know, senior executive, wasn't maybe quite as good as my father described him. So those were the kinds of things that I was really wrestling with. Um, and I, I think what I've tried to do is to sort of treat each character fairly, which you know to me means giving them their due when it's deserved, 
but it also means kind of holding up the mirror to their flaws when I, you know, perceived those or came to know those. And I hope I do the same about me in the book too. Although I, I don't know whether, I mean, there's an arc to my story in this book as well. My discoveries about my grandfather, my trips out to Austin, Minnesota to do my research. But I would say the focus is probably a little more on the three guys than it is on me. Well, Gretchen, you know, you made a number of trips to Austin, Minnesota for this book, notably to the Spam Museum, (laughs) which deserves its own show, obviously. I know, exactly. Thousands, maybe millions of people go there every year, I'm sure. But yeah, you you talked about, you know, spending a lot of time in addition to going to the museum, uh, talking to everyday folks who remembered a lot of the key players in the book. And that's got to be such an interesting experience to truly step back in time and but you spoke to your research earlier, and I'm wondering about this kind of research of talking to people like an investigative journalist. You mentioned this was one of the most important, you know, most important research you did. So, so what would you say to others who face the prospect of doing this for their own work in progress and perhaps feel a little daunted by it? Yeah, I, I actually find it to be the most fun. Um, and I, I think part of my, you know, the way I came to this, you know, again, was a result of having spent a lot of time inside companies, going out and interviewing a lot of people within the company to find out what they thought about the company, let's say. And I would do that as a mission from the CEO. So I was very accustomed to sitting with people in their offices and saying, you know, what do you think are the strengths, weaknesses, whatever, um, you know, what what things should be changed in the future. These were the CEOs that I was working with were at least the good ones, you know, really wanting to hear what their employees had to say and, and wanted um, this sort of personal touch with them by a consultant. So the fact of doing it wasn't daunting to me, um, but I understand how it could be to others. And I I think what was daunting to me was that, but it, again, it's it's very much the same way. I was coming from the East Coast to this Midwestern small city of about 20,000, 25,000, that range, um, a company town, you know, Hormel is the primary employer and it's a very proud community. It's a very warm and welcoming community, I learned. Um, but I was coming in asking some tough questions and I didn't know how I would be received by these folks, you know? And so as I would do anytime I was interviewing groups of people, I would try to sort of learn who the key players were. You know, I'd, I'd find, I'd find an ally or a source some way possible. And then I would work with them to find other people. And usually if I started with the right people, as my allies and then introduce myself to others in reference to these allies, you know, they, the others would welcome me. And that's what happened. It was the same kind of process. So some of this happened over dinner or lunch or coffee. Um, some of it happened at the historical society offices there. Um, some of it happened in the, at the spam museum, because at the time when I was, when I was at the spam museum in the late 1990s, um, I, uh, the art, Hormel still had an archivist employed and she was situated at the Spam Museum. And so when my cousin and I went to kind of interview her about our grandfather and find source documents from the company, that's where we went. So, I mean, it can be daunting, but on the other hand, it's really fun because you get to meet 
people that you never would have met before, and you get to talk to them about something that's important to you. And by and large, as you do well know from interviewing thousands of people, you know, most people like to talk about either themselves or what they know, and um, they're usually more than happy to help. I think what surprised me in those conversations truly was that more people than not, one, thought my grandfather had been wronged, two, thought that George Hormel, you know, could be kind of mean-spirited at times or grumpy or whatever words they used, and three were sort of still bowled over by the audacity of this embezzler and what he pulled off, you know, at the under the eyes um, of both my grandfather and George Hormel, but also bankers and auditors and lots of other company officials. So that said to me that I was going in fairly warmly. Like they, most of the people were not saying, "Oh, your grandfather did terrible things," and. Um, here's my proof or whatever. So I felt like I had a fairly warm reception actually. And, and I would say that I came to really like a lot of the people that I met and have maintained friendships with them for 20 years now. I'm looking forward to my launch out there in um, late June. And, and sadly, a few of them have died, but there are a number of people that I met even 25 years ago who are still there. And I look forward to seeing them again. I'd say I'd really encourage people to do it. I think it's a great way of, of you know, also just sort of giving the voice of a place or of people and the context for the place that you're in. Both of your books are about complicated and powerful men, and you've made a life and career surrounding yourself with complicated and powerful men. <laughs> so to read both your books back to back, readers will see really a composition of privilege and how powerful men get away with a lot, or at least they think they can. Uh, and the books are in some ways an indictment, but they're also a reckoning. And I think you make your own sort of peace with your male lineage. But speak to that if you would, you know, like on this side of having written both books, what are the takeaways about having written about your father and your grandfather? Yeah, great question. Um, I think, you know, I, I think my takeaways are several. One, One is that it, it didn't really occur to me until even a few years ago as I was reading, writing the first book that one of the reasons I could do the kind of work that I did and one of the reasons why now I could write this second book, I think, about somebody that I had never actually met was that through my life with my father as growing up and then with all these you know, executive guys that I was working with, I don't, I'm not really intimidated by people in power. I mean, I could be intimidated by somebody in power, I'm sure. And it's not that I've never been. But I think in general, I've seen particularly male power used upfront and personal. And I've seen it do good and I've seen it do harm. And so I don't think that I, I think I come away from these two books simply recognizing that these folks who have power and privilege are really just like the rest of us in terms of themselves inside. Um, they clearly have things that they can wield over us if they want to. Um, but kind of in their innate characters, they're not much different than 
you or I, I, that surprised me all the time when I was working with CEOs, how vulnerable they could be, how worried they were about what other people thought of them. You know, you think they're sort of above it all, <laughs> above all that, but they're really not. And so I think, you know, one big takeaway is just that these are people who are as complex as any of the rest of us. And um, many of them are good and some of them aren't so good, or even the good ones, you know, will do some wrong. So I think that's one takeaway. I think I also feel that, you know, it's important to expose these things to others because there is mythology about power and, and particularly male, gen, you know, gendered power. Um, I think there is mythology about, you know, people in top positions, et cetera. And, you know, whether that's good mythology that's driving us all in positive ways or not so good, most of it's not so good, probably. Um, I think it's important to expose these true stories about people who are privileged and powerful. And, and then I think the third thing that I would just say is that, you know, it's all relative, right? And I mean, my grandfather was very, very wealthy in 1921, and then he lost it all. And, you know, our family saw both sides, really. I mean, not that we were ever poverty stricken or anything, but, you know, my father was a poet. He made a decent living, but certainly nothing like his father did. And so, you know, it's kind of all relative, too, I think. And that's important for us to keep in mind as well. I, I think that, you know, the one other thing that I will just say to in, included in this question is that Denial is a really powerful thing. And most of us in kind of the shadow of power maybe don't want to look at it right in the face straight. And, you know, we put too much, much trust in other people. We're kind of blindsided when they do something that surprises us. We don't see what we want to see. And we cling to myths that about people around us that largely, or at least in part, might not be true. Um, and that's really an important theme here, too, for me, that, that both as individuals and corporations, you know, have both sides to them. And both individuals and corporations can be blindsided, can be in denial. Systems as well as individuals can be in denial. And what I've learned from writing these two books is that I would far rather live in a world that's real. That's so interesting, Gretchen. I, I love listening to you talk about with great generosity, I guess, the, the different layers that people have within them and um, how those layers can be, you know, contending with each other or those different characteristics. And, and it just made me kind of think about the, the true crime element of this book, because there was a real, crime here of embezzlement. Yes. It was a lot of money. And, and, and this was the part that seemed to me to require the most research. And you had to really dig into some dark corners to find letters and bank slips and newspaper articles. And, but you also had to, to speculate a bit or, or a lot in some yeah. cases about the embezzler ransom Thompson's uh, motivations and about what your grandfather may or may not have known. You know, you had to piece together the dynamics of these three main players in your book. So you're drawing from research, but also from what, 
might have or must have been to piece together, you know, this very complex puzzle. So in closing, can you can you speak more to this experience of puzzle putting together <laughs> part of being a writer? Because a book like this is about so much more than just the execution of the writing. Yeah, I like that question. Um, well, I, I it's funny because I'm actually in real life, not a puzzle maker, but yeah. I do really like puzzles in books. And and I I like the fact I like trying hard to sort of figure out what really happened. And it's my truth. It's not someone else's truth. Someone else would write a different book. But what I appreci- appreciate about these different sources of information, whether it's documented, factual kind of information or people, conversations, or just old family stories, you know, reaffirmed through my cousins and stuff, is that, you know, somewhere as I put all these things on a piece of paper on three by five parts or just in my brain in different parts, somewhere I find somewhat intuitively, but I think somewhat synergistically, a story that makes sense. And again, this was something that I would have to do with my clients. You know, they wanted to know something and I would go out and I'd get all these disparate pieces of information, people who contradicted each other, things that didn't make sense. But if I talked to enough people, and especially if I talked to the right people, I would come away with what I thought was a clear story. And so to me, that's kind of the fun of writing books like this. I, I don't, I'm turning to fiction next and I have no idea whether that would would really play there too, but certainly in this these books that are kind of investigative in some way or another, and also you know uh, true stories, it's been true for me. So there are things that I could conjecture about the um, about the embezzler, for instance, because I I had a wonderful conversation with this guy at Harvard Business School who wrote a fantastic book about why white collar criminals do what they do. His name is Eugene Salties. And, you know, I got a chance to kind of tell him the story of this embezzler and my grandfather and George Hormel and get his take on it. And so that's just another source of research, you know, where you try to find an expert, let's say, that can help make sense of the, these um, threads that you're trying to put, pull together. And, yeah, I just I think it's part of the fun of doing it. It's it's what captivates me, really. I mean, the writing is good and that and but it's you know, it's really sort of puzzling it together that I that I like the most. Well, well done, Gretchen, and congratulations on the new book. Thank you so much. And thank you, Brooke, especially for all you did to help me with it. And Grant, it's wonderful to meet you. Likewise. Thank you so much, Gretchen, for joining us. My pleasure. We'll be right back after this short break with today's book trend. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 
Well, Brooke, I'm, I'm doing a little variation of the book trend uh, this week. There, there were recently two profiles of the fantasy author Brandon Sanderson that were published in the last week. One of them was, was a Wired profile and the other one was an Esquire profile. And both of them went a bit viral, at least. The one I wanted to discuss is the Esquire profile that goes you know, behind the scenes into the ways Sanderson is changing the way his books are being published, which we, we've touched on in the past. But I, but I wanted to go deeper into the story and tell the story both as a source of inspiration and as a way for people to think about publishing their own books. So the story, in short, is that Brandon Sanderson got headlines last year because he raised $41 million on Kickstarter, which was double the previous fundraising record. And he raised that money to self-publish four secret books and then deliver them directly to 185,341 fans who contributed to the Kickstarter. So no publisher, no Amazon, no bookstores, completely indie publishing. So here's the quote he said. He said, I tried for years to get New York publishers to do things differently, and they just weren't willing to do so. So I'm doing it my way. And if it works, I'll show them it works. And if it doesn't, I'll fall on my face with $41 million. <laughs> right. He's going to fall on his face with $41 million. And people are still talking about this, right? Months and months later. Uh, what I didn't realize was that behind that Kickstarter campaign is such a huge enterprise. He employs 64 people at Dragonsteel Books, the publishing and merchandising division of his business empire. So that is a publisher, but he's his own publisher. He also has the warehouse uh, that's the size of a small airplane hangar. So there he is storing thousands of books. Subscription boxes are stacked two stories high in 15 storage bays. It's a pretty big investment to have that kind of space. And then he apparently doubled his staff to fulfill the Kickstarter. He said he did the Kickstarter in part because he doesn't like the way Amazon treats their employees. So kudos to that. But also because he's frustrated with the limitations of publishing. Well, kudos to that too. <laughs> uh, <laughs> he said he tried convincing the former president of Macmillan to publish multiple editions of his books at different price points. Uh, he was going to have like leather bound hardcovers filled with original art and then to bundle them. But Macmillan did not go for that, uh, which I can totally understand because, you know, we've talked about before publishing being such a dinosaur. Uh, so he had to turn to Dragonsteel and become an independent press and, and do it himself. So pretty cool story. One, one thing that interests me about the article is, is that he said he's not making any more money than he would have selling his books to a publisher because of the overhead costs, you know, despite that Kickstarter record. But he just loved making the statement. And his, his statement is to own your books and own your words and own the design and own the marketing, own it all. So he, he, he's disrupting publishing in a major way. And I know I know other authors will follow suit, both best-selling authors and just other authors in general. Um, but it's this latter category of authors that I'm curious about, Brooke, you know, because they, they won't have a warehouse or 64 employees and they won't need that, of course. But, but I know plenty of authors use Kickstarter or other crowdfunding platforms. So I was wondering if you have, you know, an inspirational story or just a story that you might share about how uh, someone actually used crowdfunding to bring their book to life. Inspirational or just a story. Uh, yeah. <laughs> the one I have that comes to mind, of course, because I, I dug into it quite a bit is Esper Bergman because I featured him in my TEDx talk and he does a Kickstarter for his entire publishing company, which is called Flamingo Rampant. And I always contribute money. And I think once you have that kind of loyalty and you know that they're going to do good products, then it is just a no brainer. You can go back to 
to your, the source because people want the next books and their fans. So I do think for people who have figured this out th the right way and who have like a particular niche kind of product that they're doing, which is the case with Flamingo Rampant, they're doing LGBTQ books and, and great ones at that and largely for children. Uh, so it's just not easy. I mean, when I think about Macmillan and the kinds of limitations that Macmillan has and then what Dragonsteel is doing that is just so different and completely more modern and multimedia, they're just different worlds apart. And, uh, you know, publishing does need to be disrupted. So all of this is music to my ears. Yeah, definitely. It's music to my ears in the sense of people just taking control of their um, destiny for their work. Um, and I admire that so much. And I, I think launching a Kickstarter is, uh, it feels riskier than me than writing the book, actually. But I want to get over that personally, because I because I do feel like uh, we need to embrace new models of funding. So I might give it a shot sometime soon and, and, and see how it works. So keep taking a shot with us. We're going to be here every week for you. We're going to reveal or talk about um, fascinating new ways of publishing and writing uh, so keep coming back and tell your friends about this and keep the creative conversation going and we appreciate you so much just for showing up and listening so thank you so much we'll be back next week <laughs>